Matthew chapter 11, verses 7 through 19 is where we're going to be tonight. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is, who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. I love what Jesus does here. And in order to grasp what's going on in the verses that we're looking at tonight, I have to remind you of what we covered real quickly last week. You remember John the Baptist is sitting in prison, and he's wondering if Jesus really is the Christ, even though he was the one who knew he was the Christ better than anybody else. And at the same time, he sends his disciples to go ask Jesus this question. And when the disciples show up to ask Jesus if you look at the gospel accounts of this story, you'll find that Jesus was teaching crowds of people at that time. So as Jesus was standing there teaching crowds of people, John the Baptist's disciples show up and say, John wants to know if you're the one who is to come or should we look for somebody else? And so now he, of course, tells them, you go back and tell John what you hear and see, and he gives them scripture and prophecy about the Messiah, and he sends them back. But Jesus realizes now that John the Baptist has looked wishy-washy to the crowd. And as you remember, John was well-known, and he was a prophet. And now John looks wishy-washy to the crowd. And what Jesus does next is he actually brags on John. That's why he turns back to the crowd, and he says, When you went out into the wilderness, did you go out to see a reed swayed by the wind? Did you go out to see somebody that was wishy-washy? No, you went out to see a prophet. And he said, of men born of women, none has risen greater than John the Baptist. We're going to come back to that in a little bit later in our study. But I want you to hear this, folks. At the time that John said the lowest thing he ever said about Jesus, Jesus said the greatest thing he ever said about John. See, a lot of times when we fall, when we have times of doubt and question, Satan comes in and begins to attack us, and we believe him, and we listen, and we feel like God's disappointed with us, and God's upset with us. Folks, listen to me very carefully. If disappointment includes any type of surprise, God can't be disappointed because nothing about us surprises him. And what I want to show you from Scripture, a couple examples real quick, is that Jesus, when he sees us and even knows we're going to fail, he sees the finished product. Go with me to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22, verses 31 through 34. <clears throat> now to set the stage for this, Jesus, when he first meets Peter, says, Your name is Simon, but one day you'll be called Peter. Later on, as you know, in Matthew 16, he says, Who do people say that I am? Peter speaks up and says, You're the Christ. And Jesus says to him, You are Peter now. And upon your profession of your faith, I'm going to build my church. But now, in the last week of Jesus' life, he turns to Peter, and actually the group, but he speaks to Simon, and he says, Simon, Simon. He calls him by his old name again to get his attention. He says, Behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter... The rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Don't miss that. He calls him by his old name to get his attention because he's going to act like the old guy for a brief period of time. 
But when Peter says, no, I'll go to prison and death for you, Jesus says, I tell you, Peter, you're going to deny me. He calls him by his new name again. He sees the finished product. Doesn't Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 say that he who began the good work in you will finish? And actually, Paul says, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began the good work in you will finish it. John the Baptist has a low point in his life. I don't know about you, but I actually do know about you. You're as human as I am. We all have had those days. We've all had those times. We've had failures of our faith. We've had failures in our, of our trust and all. And we've questioned even and doubted. But it's in those times that the one who began the good work in our, work in our heart actually sees the finished product. And he's not mad. He's not even disappointed because that would involve surprise. And he's not surprised. He knows everything about us. And that's why when Jesus meets back up with Peter after this, he says, Lord, he says to him, he said, do you love me? He says, Lord, I love you. He said, let's get going from here. Ask him a second time, do you love me? And he says, yes, Lord, I love you. He said, let's get going from here. Feed my sheep. And he asked him a third time, the Bible says. And the Bible says that Peter was exasperated a little bit. And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know all things. You know that I love you. And so, folks, tonight, be encouraged by the fact that when John looked pretty weak in front of that crowd of people, Jesus turned to that crowd of people and he said, that's not a weak guy. Actually, of men born of women, none has risen greater than John the Baptist. Go back to Matthew chapter 11 and look at something else that he says about John. He also points out that John was the fulfillment of the prophecy in Malachi chapter 3. You see there in verse um, 10, he said, This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Back up one book of the Bible from Matthew back to Malachi, last book of the Old Testament, and take a look at Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1 says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord will see, you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So Jesus, quoting from Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, says, not only is he a prophet that you went out to see, you actually went out to see the one that the prophecy said was going to come and prepare the way for me. But then in verse 14 of Matthew chapter 11, he also points out that he is also Elijah, who is to come, quoting, go back to Matthew chapter 11, look at verse 14. And Jesus says, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Go back to Malachi again and look at chapter 4 and verses 5 and 6. There was a prophecy also in that book of Malachi. Not only that there would be this one, the messenger that go before the Lord to prepare the way for him. In Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, God says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So he also says, and for you, if you're willing to accept it, he said, he's also Elijah who was to come. Now, we're going to deal with something tonight that is kind of a bugaboo for some people. And I think it'll be valuable for us to chase this rabbit tonight because there's, you can catch it and it tastes delicious once you do. So we're going to chase a rabbit for a little bit. Jesus said that John was Elijah who was to come. But John said he wasn't. Go with me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, look at verses 19 through 28. And it says, And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Because there was another prophecy from Isaiah that also talked excuse me, about his, his ministry and his role. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him, Why then are you baptizing if you're neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? 
John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. And these things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. So Jesus says, if you're willing to accept it, John the Baptist is Elijah who was to come. He was ears to hear, let him hear. But John the Baptist, when they asked him, are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. So which is it? And you're going to find the answer is, they're both right. Let's, let's, let's chase this one. Go to Matthew chapter 17 and let's get a little bit more information. Jesus talks about this situation and this conundrum, if you will, in Matthew 17. <clears throat> Look at verses 1 through 13. It says, And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we're here. If you wish, I'll make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. So interesting is that Moses and Elijah appear on the Mount of Transfiguration there with Jesus. And Jesus tells them as they're heading back down the mountain, you can't tell anybody what you saw until after I've risen from the dead. They ask him as they're going down, they say, why do the scribes say that Elijah has to come first? And Jesus says this, he says, truly Elijah's going to come. He's going to come and he's going to restore all things. But I tell you, he's already come. As you've already seen in scripture, as we've been teaching on it for years, that prophecy has a partial fulfillment and an ultimate fulfillment a lot of times. And remember how Jesus worded what he said back in Matthew chapter 11 about John the Baptist being the coming of Elijah. You remember how he worded it? He said, if you're willing to accept it, and then he also said, for those who have ears to hear. You see, if they were willing to accept it, John would have been the coming of Elijah since he came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Go to Luke chapter 1, and it'll help you understand that a little bit more. Go to Luke chapter 1, and look at verses 13 through 17. In Luke 1, verse 13, it says, But the angel said to him, this is to Zechariah, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb." And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. This, by the way, if you caught that, that was almost word for word, Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, about how I'm turning the hearts of the fathers to their children and so on. He said he's going to come. John the Baptist is going to come in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the children to their fathers, or the fathers to their children, and so on. And here at the same time, John the Baptist came on the scene, preaching a message of repentance, get ready, the Messiah is coming, the King is coming, the, uh, the one who comes after me, I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. And if the Jews were willing to accept it, if they were willing to believe in Jesus, and to surrender to the fact that he was the Messiah, which, of course, they did not do, he would have been the fulfillment of it. Yet... The Bible also shows us that God knew before the foundation of the world that even though they had the opportunity and that would have been the fulfillment of it, it wasn't going to be the fulfillment of it ultimately because they were going to reject the Messiah. Go to Isaiah 53. 
Look at Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 6. It says, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and a root, like root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So the prophecy even already said that they were going to reject him as the Messiah. And so, folks, this is one of those things where we have this, this wrestling point for many of us, in which the Bible is very, very clear that everybody has a free will to choose however they wish to choose. Yet, God is omniscient. And he already knows what everybody's choices are going to be. Now, there are those in Christianity that think they're super smart, and they say if man has a choice, God's not in control and he's not sovereign. Therefore, man has no choice, and God makes all the decisions for men. That's not what the Bible teaches. But there are also those who say, well, man has so much freedom, they can do it whenever they want, however they want. And no, that's not true either, because as the Bible teaches, if you and I do come to faith, who did it? God did. We're saved by grace. Not anything of ourselves, it's not by works, it's not of ourselves so no one can boast, it's the work of God. And so we have to be willing to let both sides go here, and for years I've said to you, God already knows what choice you're going to make, but you don't, so make the right choice. And so, folks, in this situation, God offered Israel the chance to respond. Even though he knew they were going to reject him, even though the prophecy said the nation of Israel would despise him and, and, and esteem him smitten by God, even though the prophecy said they weren't going to respond, did he give them a chance to do so? Yes. But he knew they wouldn't. And that's why Jesus said, if you're willing to accept it, John is. Remember, John's still alive at this time when Jesus says this. If you're willing to accept it, he is the coming of Elijah. Who he was ears to hear, let him hear. But unfortunately, the nation of Israel, we'll go to John chapter 1, and let's just read the Bible for itself. Go to John chapter 1. Look at verse 5. Six. Go to verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This is John the Baptist. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Do you see it? He says he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But all who did, all of those who were willing to accept it, he was the Elijah who came prior to the Messiah. And those of us who have come to faith in Jesus, for us, that was the coming of Elijah. We don't need another coming of Elijah because he has prepared the way and we've responded to the Messiah. We're the ones who have ears to hear. That's why you see in the book of Revelation, the messages to the churches over and over as God makes these promises and these prophecies. How does he end each one? In the letters to the churches, he was ears to hear. Let him hear that he says to the churches. But I actually, at the same time, because of all this, I actually think, and I'm going to lay it out for you scripturally, I think that also this is further evidence of the fact that I believe without question that Elijah will be one of the two witnesses that show up in the book of Revelation. 
I really believe that Elijah and Moses are going to be the two witnesses for a lot of reasons scripturally. As you know, I've told you over the years, I won't speculate unless I believe the scripture gives you backing to do such. This isn't one of those deal breakers of whether or not you go to heaven if you agree with me or don't agree with me because you don't have to. But I want to lay it out for you and show you scripturally a lot of scriptural reasons, something you might not have even seen, that Elijah is going to be one of the two witnesses First off, if you go back and read the gospel accounts, all of the ones that list the story of Jesus' transfiguration, you'll actually see that Moses and Elijah not only appear on that mountain, they also were talking with Jesus about what was going to soon take place in Jerusalem. They're in on this inner workings of what's going to be going on. Also, Moses and Elijah represent what? The law and the prophets. Moses and Elijah represent the law and the prophets. So actually, when Jesus stood there on the Mount of Transfiguration and His glory shone through His flesh, and the Father said, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased, the law and the prophets were standing there as well. And the book of Romans chapter 3 says that this righteousness which comes by faith in Jesus Christ, which the law and the prophets both testify to. But let me show you a couple other things. Go to Revelation chapter 1, sorry, 11. Revelation 11 verses 1 through 14. Revelation chapter 11, as you're turning there, for years, prophecy teachers have said that uh, the two witnesses have to be uh, Elijah and Enoch, because those two people never died. And the Bible says in Hebrews 9, 27, that it's appointed for man once to die and then face the judgment. And therefore, since Enoch and Elijah are the two people in the Bible that we don't see actually dying, and these two witnesses are going to die in Jerusalem, they have to be the two witnesses because they have to come back and die. There's a problem with that theology and that theory. Here's a couple problems with it. One is, um, how many of you, show of hands, believe in the rapture of the church prior to the tribulation period? All right, are you going to die? Are you just, if we're alive at that time, are you going to be just taken away like Elijah? Are you going to have to come back and die then? You see the foolishness of that? If they have to come back and die, all of you going is going to be raptured are going to have to come back and die. That does not, that's not good theology. And on top of that, Enoch wasn't even a Jew. Enoch was prior to the Jews. Actually, Enoch represents the Gentile nations more than he does the Jewish nations. Actually, look at Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 through 14. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. It's given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. That's three and a half years, by the way. Keep that in mind. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Does anybody know how long that is? That's three and a half years as well. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed they have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then I heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. So we know that the Revelation says there's going to be these two witnesses, these two human beings that are going to be on the earth in Jerusalem, and they're going to be prophesying for how long? Three and a half years. Not only that, they have the ability to shut up the rain for the whole length of the time that they prophesy, it says. So they had the ability to shut the rain off on the earth for three and a half years. Real quickly, go with me to the book of James, chapter 5. 
Look at verse 17. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Isn't that interesting? That while Elijah was on the earth, he prayed that it wouldn't rain. Remember on the time of Jezebel and ba Baal altar and, and Ahab and all that? He prayed that it wouldn't rain, and it didn't rain for three and a half years. You think the scripture might give us a little picture here of what's going on? Oh, what else happens if people try to harm these two witnesses? They're not only able to stop the rain for three and a half years. The Bible says that fire comes from them. By the way, the prophets that dealt with fire, Elijah. And then not only that, they have the ability to do what? Plagues. Who's famous for that? Moses. Again, pictures of what is to come. Folks, let me just tell you, take some encouragement from this. God already sees it. He's already seen the finished product. He's even to tell us how many people are going to die in Jerusalem when that earthquake happens. It's all in his, he sees it all. He sees the finished product. You don't know how you're going to finish. You better make the right choice and you better stay in the faith and you better respond well. But at the same time, he already sees the finished product. And if he knows that you're his, and he knows that he's begun a good work in you and he's confirmed it by giving you his spirit, you're sealed and you're his. And don't let the enemy beat you up when you have a bad day. Yet at the same time, Elijah will come and will restore all things. I believe the Bible hints at the fact that one of the two witnesses is going to be Elijah, and I think the other one's going to be Moses. But you don't have to agree with me. You can be wrong. But let's take a look at a couple things about Moses and Elijah's bodies, though, at the same time. Go with me to 2 Kings chapter 2. Look at verses 1 through 14. It says, Now when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal, and Elijah said to Elisha, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel, and the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he said, Yes, I know. Keep it quiet. Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. The sons of the prophets who were at Jericho drew near to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he said, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Then Elijah said to him, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men of the sons of prophets also went and stood at some distance from them, as they both were standing by the Jordan. Then Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up, and he struck the water, and the water was parted to one side and to the other, till the two of them could go over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I'm taken from you. And Elisha said, Please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, You have asked a hard thing. Yet if you see me as I'm being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it, and he cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. And he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water, saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to the one side and the other, and Elisha went over. So we know that when Elijah died, God just kind of took him up into heaven. Now again, Enoch had already had this happen to him when he walked with God and was no more. But we know that Elijah went just to be with the Lord. What happened to Moses? The Bible actually says that Moses died. Go with me back to Deuteronomy chapter 34. Look at verses 1 through 12. Deuteronomy 34 verses 1 through 12. 
Then it says, Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead as far as Dan and all Naphtali and the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, the Negeb and the plain, that is, the valley of Jericho and the city of palm trees as far as Zoar. And the Lord said to him, This is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And God buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows the place of his burial to this day. Isn't that interesting? Stop for a second before we go any further. Moses was a pretty important guy, don't you think? And as much as they would revere and reverence men who were important, they would have special burials. We, we, the tombs of the prophets and all this stuff. But Moses, of all people... They didn't even know where he was buried because God took him by himself, showed him the land that he wasn't going to get to go into, at least not then. And he died and God buried him and they don't know where they buried him. Keep reading. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. So he didn't die of natural causes. And the people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab thirty days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. And Joshua the son of Nun was full of the spirit and of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him as they did the Lord had commanded, obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent to him to do in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his servants and all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. Now, his story doesn't end there. There's actually another mention of Moses' body. It's in the book of Jude. Go to the book of Jude and look at verse 9. Jude verse 9, Jude says, But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Interesting. As Jude is talking about these false teachers who are acting all holy and super spiritual, and they, they just you know, blaspheme demons and all this kind of stuff, and Satan, and be careful of anybody that acts like they're way more powerful than Satan. They're not. Only God is. That's why the Bible says we're to submit ourselves, therefore, to God, resist Him, and He'll flee. He doesn't leave because of you and me. Be careful about those people who walk around saying, Satan, I command you to get out of here, and all this stuff. Folks, the Bible actually says that everything's in full subjection to Jesus, yet, yet we don't see everything in subjection to Him. And if God in His purpose and His plan has allowed Satan to have some authority and some rule still, even though he's been defeated at the cross, who are you and I to think that we can just tell Satan what to do all the time? We're not God, and God Himself has chosen for a season to allow Satan to do some things. Therefore, be careful of those preachers who are out there talking about how I got the authority in Jesus to do this and the authority in Jesus to do that. The archangel Michael when disputing with, with Satan about the body of Moses, didn't even say anything except the Lord rebuke you. Listen closely, though. Why was Satan interested in the body of Moses? Unless maybe God had another purpose for it still in the future. Again, you don't have to agree with me. But I think when you put all of these together, you start to see that John the Baptist came in the spirit and the power of Elijah, and he was Elijah who was to come for those who were willing to accept it. Those who had ears to hear and eyes to see. He was the fulfillment of the one preparing the way for the Lord. And for those of us who responded, and there were some Jews who did, he was the coming of Elijah. But the Bible says at the very end, at the end of the tribulation period, those Jews that are left... Those who have survived the tribulation period, over two-thirds of them are going to be killed, and a third's going to run out into the wilderness. Those who survive are going to look on Him in whom they've pierced. They're going to weep. They're going to turn to faith. And all Israel will be saved at the end of the tribulation period. And I believe without question that Jesus said, Elijah is still to come, and He's going to restore all things. I believe Elijah is going to be one of those two witnesses that's going to be preaching for three and a half years in the city of Jerusalem to prepare the way for the return of Jesus Christ. 
So we chased a rabbit for a while, and we'll get right to you. We, we chased a rabbit for a while, but I hope it was catchable and ch tasted okay for some of you. Go ahead, Sheila. Yes. Uh, when he talks about, her question was, for those who couldn't hear, can I elaborate on restore all things? I'm going to give you the short version real fast. If you go back and look at the prophecies over and over and over, that term is, re is used over and over in Jeremiah, in Ezekiel, and, and places like that where it talks about how he's going to restore the fortunes of Jerusalem and Judah. He's going to restore Israel to its prominence like it used to have and all that stuff when he sets up the kingdom on the earth. Go with me to Acts chapter 3. Go to Acts chapter 3. We'll chase this one real quick too. I think we have time for it. Go to Acts chapter 3. Peter's preaching. And in verse 17, look at what it says. He says, And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God had foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. When Jesus comes back, he's going to restore everything. Elijah is going to come to restore things as the one preparing the way for him. And he's going to preach again. Get ready. He's coming. He's coming. And the same message of repentance is going to be the message he'll preach again. And people of the world aren't going to like it. They're going to try to kill him, but they won't be able to. And they're going to all those things happen. But again, when Jesus comes back, if you go back and look at all the prophecies that say restore, 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 those promises will all be fulfilled at that time. Is that short enough, clear enough for you? Definitely God's putting things in place and preparing the way. There's still a lot more that's going to happen. And again, the two witnesses are going to be a big, big part of that. And so, again, he's promised, I'm going to send Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord. And that's when he's going to begin the process of restoring all things. But ultimately, it's Jesus. But it's through Elijah's ministry to prepare the way. So, good question. Go back to Matthew chapter 11. I think that's where we're studying tonight. Matthew chapter 11. Look at verse 11. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Think about this for a minute. We're going to deal with two things that Jesus says about John the Baptist and about the kingdom that are hard for some people. This is the easier one of the two. All right. He says, Of men born of women, none has risen greater than John the Baptist. Yet the person who's least in the kingdom to come is greater than John. Actually, the answer to this is very simple. It's not that hard to interpret. Jesus is simply emphasizing the importance of getting into the kingdom. He does this a lot. In other words, he says, you know, of men born of women on this earth, you're not going to find anybody better than John the Baptist. But if you're trying to be impressed with someone on this earth, you're totally going to miss it. Because the kingdom is far greater than what's here. Yeah, of men born of women, he's the greatest. That's wonderful. But what good does that do you? What does it profit a man if he gained the whole world and forfeit his soul? Go to Mark chapter 9. Let me show you. Jesus has been emphasizing over and over, all through the scriptures, the importance of not living for this life, but living for the life to come, the kingdom to come. In Mark chapter 9, look at verses 43 through 48. In Mark 9, 43 and if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than to two, with two hands to go to hell. 
to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. So here Jesus is saying, in a very interesting way, you've got a problem with sin? <laughs> you better deal with it, because it'd be better to go into the kingdom with one eye than to have two and go to hell. In other words, if you're going to live for this life, you better live for the life to come. And as you're about to see in the end of our study and the time we have, he says, look, we need to be serious about wanting to get into that kingdom. We need to be bold about, and even drastic, if you will, about wanting to get into that kingdom. Go to Matthew chapter 6. You'll see him illustrate this again. Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21. Very familiar passage, but listen to what he says. He says, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus, again, this is going to be important for us for the next thing we're going to deal with. In the context, he's saying... Don't be living for this life. I, I want to just brag on John the Baptist. You guys think he looked wishy-washy, but he didn't. He, of men born of women, there hadn't been anybody greater than John the Baptist. But don't think that's what you're shooting for, to be the greatest here. The one who's least in the kingdom is going to be greater than John because that's a far better place to be. Do you understand what he's saying? He's saying you should be living for the life to come. Go again, chapter 6. You're in chapter 6. Look at verses 31 through 33. He says, therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear for the Gentiles? Those who don't know the Lord seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and He'll take care of all that other stuff. Again, where shall our focus be? Not this life, but the life to come. And that's all he was saying. John's awesome. I don't want you to think for a second that I'm disappointed with John. I think he's the greatest of men born or women. But don't stop there. You want to get into the kingdom. And those who are least in the kingdom are going to be greater than that. Now then he says something else. In verse 12, Jesus says that the kingdom has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. And this has been a hard thing for a lot of people to grasp. What is he saying here? Again, our context in Luke's account of this teaching will help us understand this. The context, as we just saw, is the importance of getting into the kingdom. Also, Luke shows us a little more clearly what Jesus is saying. So go with me to Luke 16, and we'll look at Luke's account. How Luke words it, or the Spirit words it through Luke, will be helpful for us. In Luke 16, look at verses 14 through 17. It says, The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, again, living for this world, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. Isn't that interesting? In Matthew's account, it says, The kingdom has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. Luke says that Jesus said, that forceful people or everyone forced their way into it. In both accounts, Jesus points out that the law and the prophets both spoke of how to enter the kingdom. Until John, the law and the prophets had been prophesying. And again, what were the law and the prophets testifying to? How to get into the kingdom through faith in Jesus Christ. This righteousness by faith had been what the law and the prophets had been preaching all along and teaching all along. By the way, how did people respond? How did the Jews respond to the law? Did they obey it? They rejected it. Correctly? Right? They, re they rejected it. How did they respond to the prophets? They rejected them, and not only did they reject them, they did what? They killed them. The kingdom has suffered violence. By the way, how did they treat John the Baptist? You remember back in Matthew 17, Jesus said, and they did to him whatever they wanted? And so also the Son of Man will suffer at their hands. But as much resistance as the message of the kingdom has faced through the rejecting of the law and the killing of the prophets and the imprisonment and death of John, 
The kingdom keeps moving forward. And it takes bold, strong, society-resisting effort to enter the kingdom. Jesus never said it would be easy to enter the kingdom. What he's saying in this passage is this. All along, the law and the prophets have prophesied until John, and they've been resisted violently. John the Baptist has been resisted violently. The Son of Man's going to be resisted violently. But the kingdom keeps going. And those who are going to enter it need to be just as bold to get in. If there's going to be that much opposition, what are you going to have to be going against to get into the kingdom? That much opposition. Do you understand what he's saying? The kingdom has suffered violence, and the violent are the ones who enter. And not meaning you have to go be a jerk and fight people, but you have to be strong in your faith. You need to put on the full armor of God. You need to be boldly trusting in what God has said, because what is wonderful in the eyes of man is an abomination before God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the Bible actually says that if you think you're wise in this world, become a fool so that you can become wise. Because God's chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. He's taken the things that are not to confound and to nullify the things that are. Verse 28 of chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, so that no flesh may glory in His presence. Don't get me started on how much the church today has functioned in the flesh and not the spirit, and we think it's spiritual. We try to make good business decisions and do things that make sense to us and how we see things instead of trusting God and doing things that seem stupid because God said to. We look at things with man's eyes. We honor man. We glorify man. We want to, when the Bible says in Luke chapter 17, verses 7 through 10, Jesus said, when your servant comes in from working in the field, do you say to him, hey, come on, sit down. Let me serve you. Do you not yet say to that person, dress yourself to serve me and then afterwards you can eat? And do you thank that servant for doing what they were commanded? So you too also must say, we are unworthy servants. We've only done what we've been commanded. Jesus said, our attitude on this life should be, I'm not doing it to be recognized by anybody. I'm not doing it to be noticed by anybody. I'm just serving the Lord and I've only done what He's asked me to do. Yet how often in our churches today do people fuss because they didn't get a banquet because of all the years of service or they didn't get a thank you after the year of work or the week of work at VBS or and nobody noticed all that I did. And we spend too much time putting plaques on pews and people's names and naming buildings after people and giving people honor and glory and it sounds so wonderful but the Bible says we're not to seek that. Actually, most of the people who have had buildings named after them down here on earth are probably in heaven saying, I wish they'd take that off because it's not about me. But we've made that spiritual, haven't we? You can't move that wall because that window was donated in memory of my mama. And we think that's spiritual. The things that are important in the eyes of man are an abomination before God. Folks, you, this is where we're going to go in the time we have left. Don't just assume you're in the kingdom. Don't just assume you're in the kingdom. Because only the ones that enter the kingdom are the ones who are honestly radical enough and bold enough to say, I don't care what the rest of the world thinks. I only want to know what God thinks. I don't care what other people say. Even in the church, I want to know what God's word says. And that's how I want to live. Jesus never said it would be easy to enter the kingdom. Go back to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, look at verses 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to eternal life. Sorry, leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow, and the way is what? Hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Go to Luke 14. Look at verses 25 through 33. Luke 14, verses 25 through 33. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, and wife, and children, and brothers, and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever doesn't bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, doesn't first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? 
Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see him begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Let's be honest, folks. Those aren't easy words. It's not the kind of preaching we listen to today. All you got to do is say a prayer. All you got to do is just trust Jesus and you're going to heaven. But the Bible actually says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15, that he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Jesus said, there has been great opposition, tremendous opposition to the kingdom all along. And you've got to be pretty strong to get in. Because you're going to be going against family. You're going to be going against others who claim to be Christians. You're going to be going against the world, Satan. Uh, folks, the spiritual authorities of evil in this heavenly realm. Uh, do you realize it's not easy to get into the kingdom? What's the only way you can get into the kingdom? Through Jesus Christ, who's the only one who has victory over all that. And you have to daily deny yourself. You've got to daily be willing to say, my flesh wants to function in this manner. My, my brain says this is how... God gave me a brain. He wants me to use it. You ever heard people say that in the church? No, He doesn't. He wants you to use it by reading His Word and doing what He says. And by the way, most of the time when He says to do things, it goes against everything that we think is how things should be done. Are you willing to surrender all of your plans to follow Christ? This, by the way, also explains Jesus' illustration in verses 16 through 19 back in Matthew chapter 11. Remember how he told the story of the children in the marketplace? He said, how can I describe this generation? It's like kids playing in the marketplace and wanting to get their fellow children to respond. We played a flute. You didn't dance. Well, maybe you're not in the mood to dance. Maybe you want to sing a dirge. So I'll just beat my breath. I'll play a dirge on, on, on this instrument and you beat your breast. In other words... The Son of Man came, eating and drinking, going to parties, and you called him a glutton and a drunkard. John the Baptist came, he didn't eat or drink like that, and you say he has a demon. And then Jesus, and this is what we're going to close with in our time we have left. Look at what Jesus says at the end of our passage there, in verse 19. We'll go to verse 18. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. We've just seen how the nation of Israel has resisted all of God's attempts to get them to humble themselves through the law, the prophets, and John. And they're going to do the same to the Son of God, as we touched on in Matthew 17. Go real quickly to Matthew 17. Look at verses 9 through 13. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. The disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say first that Elijah must come? And he answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come. And when Jesus says this, by the way, John's already been put to death in prison. I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they didn't recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Jump over to Luke 20 real quick. Verses 9 through 18. Luke chapter 20, verses 9 through 18. And Jesus began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and led it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. And when the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I'll send my beloved son. Perhaps they'll respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is their heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? 
The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Jesus said, they've resisted the law, they've resisted the prophets, they resisted John the Baptist, and they're going to do the same to the Son of Man. Wisdom is justified by her deeds. In other words, you can say that you're spiritual. You can say you're a Christian. You can say you're a follower of Jesus. Your actions are going to speak louder than your words. I'm going to close tonight in the time we have left, in the last five minutes that we have, reading to you some passages of Scripture, and I'm just going to let the Scripture speak, and then we're going to close. And let the Spirit speak to our hearts. Again, listen closely. I'm not here to make anybody question their salvation. That's the enemy's work. The Bible says in, John, in Romans chapter 8, verse 16, that His Spirit testifies with our spirit that we're His children. He confirms it in our hearts. But at the same time, the Bible's full of passages that talk about how people who say they have it, the only real, real way that you'll know, God already knows. He knows the finished product. The only way you'll know that you really have it is not because you say you do, but because your actual life will manifest it. Go to James chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. James 2, 14 through 17. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but he doesn't have works or action that prove it? Can that kind of a faith save him? The kind where you just say you have it? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have evidence or works, is dead. Some of you might say, well, I have, you have faith and I'll show you my works. And he goes on and illustrates how Abraham's faith was proved by his actions. Go to James chapter 1. Look at verses 22 through 27. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forget what he looks like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he's religious and doesn't bridle his tongue, he deceives his heart. This person's religion is worthless. Religion that's pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. 2 Corinthians 13.5 says this, Examine yourself to see whether or not you're in the faith. Is Jesus in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. Go to John chapter 2. Look at verses 23 through 25. John chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. Now when he, Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing but Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people, and he needed no one to bear witness about him or about man, for he himself knew what was in man. We'll close with Galatians chapter, 20, chapter 5. Go to Galatians chapter 5. Start in verse 19. Now the works or the evidence of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, Orgies and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's not saying that you ever did one of those, you're in trouble. It's saying if that's how you live your life, if this is what you're known for, you're known to be an argumentative, divisive person, you're known to be a person that gets angry and has fits of rage, if that's who you are and that's what's seen in your life all the time, 
Chances are you don't have the Spirit. That's evidence of the flesh. But the fruit or the evidence of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there's no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, in other words, if we're born again, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, and you've been to a business meeting or two, what have you seen in those meetings when you look at the two lists? We've seen the flesh, haven't we? And our churches are full of it, and we think it's spiritual. I've even had people say to me when I have said that ought not be, they will say to me, that's how we do things here. Folks, my encouragement to you is this. Not just for salvation, but also on a daily basis, as Jesus tries to get you to respond to what he's doing in and through you, are you resisting him? Wisdom will be justified by your actions. I love you. We'll see you in three weeks. Thanks for coming.